This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 50 of Inside COVID-19. As we bring up the half-century, South Africans seeking diversification abroad can now buy into portfolios run by the world's biggest investment houses at a discounted exchange rate. Yeah, it's true. We'll find out about that later. We also have a look at the lockdown-inspired day trading boom in the United States that's apparently responsible for a five-fold surge in the Sassel share price. And we go off to Germany to investigate how to spot a fake COVID-19 protective mask. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's confirmed new daily coronavirus infections are continuing to rise exponentially with a new peak of almost 5,000 reported on Saturday and another 4,600 new cases on Sunday. The total is set to exceed 100,000 when today's numbers are released, with deaths now at around 2,000. The country's new daily cases are consistently in the top 10 of all countries nowadays, with Sunday's increase eighth behind the USA, Brazil, India, Russia, Chile, Pakistan and Mexico. South Africa's late start and relatively low mortality rate, however, accounts for a more modest ranking of 26th in total deaths, while on total cases, the country lies 19th. Globally, total coronavirus cases rose above 9 million on Sunday. Deaths are now at 471,000. In an update issued this afternoon, the country's Solidarity Fund said it had approved more than 1.2 billion rands towards health interventions, including the purchase of 200 ventilators that cost 19.5 million. There's 137 million rand that's been spent on humanitarian relief efforts, with food reaching 280,000 families, and 36 million rand has been invested in education and awareness programs. The fund has received 2.9 billion rand in pledges, with 2.6 billion of this deposited already through 264,000 donations from individuals and 1,800 corporates. Capitec Bank delivered a gift to thousands of its customers today with the announcement that it will refund 100% of the interest to those who took advantage of a three-month repayment holiday. Chief Executive Kheri Ferri says around 20% of the bank's credit clients had taken advantage of the repayment holiday between when the lockdown began on the 27th of March and the end of this month. The interest rebate will be applied provided customers honor their loan repayments for the next six months. New Yorkers today celebrate the second phase of reopening at the city, which was the U.S.'s coronavirus epicenter. Up to 300,000 people go back to work, including those at barbershops and hair salons, although occupancy at these outlets has been capped at half the pre-COVID-19 levels, 
Reading material has been removed and stylists have to wear a face shield or safety goggles. Also allowed from this week is outdoor dining at restaurants and there's the reopening of city playgrounds and in-store retail. But while New York is reopening, President Donald Trump's trade advisor Peter Navarro said the White House is preparing for a second wave of coronavirus infections. The American death toll is already at 120,000, by far the highest in the world. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. Craig Scher is the General Manager and Head of Research and Development at Discovery. It's interesting to see that, that you're an actuary and you've been with Discovery for nearly 20 years. You guys have been having a look at the trends of South Africans wanting to diversify their portfolios globally and launched today a new product, which is on the back of something that uh, Discovery Invest has been up to. Just by way of background, the thrust that you've you've gone into here, is this market-driven? The idea behind Discovery Invest International, let me just say at the outset, is that it wasn't something that we built in response to COVID or market conditions at the time. In fact, we've been looking at building this particular part of the company for over a year now. So I guess it's a bit fortuitous that it came about at a time when a lot of people are looking at moving their money offshore. But I think really the reason for offshore investing is something that's always been there. It's something that people should always focus on. It's very important from diversifying currency, from getting access to opportunities, and just general geographical diversification. So although it's something that's really a hot topic at the moment, it's something that we wanted to do for a little while. The psychology of investors, though, surely has changed with COVID-19. I mean, I think that's true. A lot of people, we think there is definitely a lot more appetite for offshore investing. And there also happens to be a lot more fear in the market. A lot of people are actually moving into more conservative investments, you know, moving their money into cash. In many cases, probably wrongly changing their financial plans into something that is more conservative instead of sticking to their long-term plan. So this definitely does have an effect on investor psychology. The product that you launched today, Discovery Global Endowment, has got a couple of really big name international partners, uh, BlackRock and Goldman Sachs. How do you get to open the doors to these huge organizations? So, I mean, I think that just talks to the, uh, I guess, the negotiating power of Discovery. As the company has grown, it's been able to bring on really, really big partners. You'll know through through Vitality, it's a strong partnership with Apple globally across the, the world. We've done very similarly. We've got BlackRock, we've got Goldman Sachs. BlackRock's the biggest investment manager in the world. They have assets under management of almost $7 trillion, 13,000 investment professionals. So it really is a powerhouse of investing, and, and I think we're, we're very glad and very proud to have them as, as our partner. It's interesting that if you bring it back to South Africa's GDP pre-COVID, I mean, before the minus 10%, uh, that's 20 times South Africa's uh, economy. So it just shows you the size of BlackRock is, is quite staggering. How are you leveraging those partnerships then for people in South Africa to, to take advantage of? So what we've got through BlackRock is an advised set of portfolios or funds, something that's very, very easy for an investor to navigate Essentially, we just look at their risk profile, conservative, moderate, and or aggressive, and then we're able to channel those investors into portfolios that are managed by BlackRock. So we've got a discovery conservative portfolio, a moderate, and an aggressive. 
And these portfolios are made out of active funds, passive funds, got BlackRock funds, it's got a whole lot of other funds in it, really a diversified basket that our investors are able to invest in. And these things are, are portfolios that have been managed by BlackRock in the way that they've been doing it over many, many decades. And you'll just know that BlackRock actually manage manage money for some of the biggest institutions across the world. And, and so being able to bring this to the retail investor in South Africa, we think is very powerful. And the partnership with Goldman Sachs? Uh, yes, it's a very similar story. Goldman Sachs, they have almost $2 trillion in assets under management, dollars, again, 38 countries around the world. And through Goldman Sachs, we've set up a set of share portfolios. Investor can go in, have access to offshore shares, some of the big names, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Nike, etc., and have a portfolio of these that are managed, again, by Goldman Sachs. They're one of the best in the world at doing this. Now, you have described this as a world first, and I read through the documentation that there's an enhanced exchange rate. So I wasn't too sure how all of this works, but maybe you can unpack that for us. Sure. So, so one of the focus areas of discovery, as you know, is around this idea of shared value, that if we can get people to have the right type of behavior that is good for discovery and good for them, then discovery will make more profit, and then we will share that profitability with the clients who made that profit. And this works in exactly the same way. What we've done is we've calculated, through various actuarial techniques, we've calculated the total profitability that somebody who invests with us in an offshore platform is going to make for us. And then what we do is we take some of that profitability over the sort of the 10-year term, and we channel it upfront into a currency discount. And so what this means is if the rand dollar, I think this morning it was about 1734, around there, 1734, 1740, if you were to invest in the global endowment today in one of these funds, you would buy in at about 1610 or 1613. So effectively a rand and a bit below the, the current exchange rate. And that applies whether you're investing in dollars, in pounds, in euros. I think the, the euro was about 1930, and here you'd get in at under 18. And that's the idea behind it, that you can invest offshore at a better exchange rate no matter when you invest. Craig, that's, that's revolutionary. Serious. How do you manage to do that? So if I understand correctly, you are calculating what the profit that will be generated on that investment will be for discovery, and then you kick back part of that to give the person a lower exchange rate entry point. Absolutely. That's right. Has anybody done this before, or where did the idea come from? The idea came from us. I mean, we, that's why we did call it a, a world first. We couldn't find anybody who, who had done it. And with the other parts that, that are associated with this, that's quite easy to understand. It's, it's shared value. You're going to be buying your offshore assets at a lower price than you would be if you went through any of the banks today or even the foreign exchange market. But... Things like administration, do those costs make up for the benefit that you would be getting here? No, we don't charge anything extra for this. The idea behind shared value is really that we charge the same as any other competitive platform in South Africa. But because we have people investing, hopefully for a longer period as a result of it, that's actually what generates the additional revenue. So, I mean, we do know that the structure has to stand on its own two feet. You know, you can't have one key product and then the rest of it is uncompetitive. So the structure, whether you take advantage of the exchange rate benefit or not, is 
It's flexible, it's efficient, it's competitively priced. It's structured for liquidity and, and tax planning and estate planning and all that type of thing. And then we've got this like state-of-the-art digital experience and onboarding. So you don't need any paper. You don't have to send any of that stuff in. It can all be done sort of online, no wet signatures. So at a base, the chassis is very competitive. And then on top of it, you obviously get the better exchange rate. You get access to the world's best asset managers, et cetera, et cetera. And COVID-19, you mentioned the digital platform. You can carry on with business as usual. Yes, that is the thinking. Look, we're still trying to understand exactly what business as usual really means, as is, I guess, every company in South Africa. But really, the idea is to make it as simple and seamless as possible, and that you'd be able to do everything online, that you'd be able to interact online, sign documents online, really trying to build everything with this all in mind, that that the world has changed and some things will actually stay. A lot more of the world, I think, will be digital in the future. Craig, I know it's early days because you've only just launched this, but have you had any feedback yet from intermediaries from the marketplace? A lot of excitement, a lot of excitement, a lot of questions in line with your question. How do you do that currency discount, etc.? But general, very, very strong sentiment of positivity around it. But I guess, like anything, you know, it's a it's a complicated investment time, and so we'll see in the numbers when they come through. So just to encapsulate it in a nutshell, you can invest in share portfolios with Goldman Sachs or in BlackRock assets, which are primarily the index funds, I suppose, by going through this Discovery Global Endowment today at a discount to the current exchange rate because Discovery is sharing its profits with you. Correct. Look, there's also, I mean, those are two of the solutions, but also it's a, it is, has an open architecture. So if you want, you can choose from other funds. You know, if you prefer to invest with some other asset manager, we also have them on our platform. We also have a curated a list of funds from a company called All Funds. All Funds, as you might know, is the, the largest distribution network of funds in the world. And what they've done is they've, they have 40,000 investment choices. Then what they've done is they've done some screening to get it down to 7,000. Some other screening gets it down to 1,200. And they get all the way down to a, a defined list of 73 investment choices. So besides BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, you can also have almost any asset manager that you want on our platform or our bespoke list that is built on the strength of the conviction of the All Funds research. What is the minimum investment into this new product? So the minimums, again, are in line with the market. In dollars, it's $25,000, or currency equivalent. In rands, it's it's about 375,000 rand. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Since COVID-19 hit, sending millions of workers home, day trading on the stock markets has ballooned. The commission-free Robinhood app, which offers investing in fractions of as little as a dollar, opened 3 million new accounts since the American lockdown started. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and Vonnie Quinn quizzed Jared Dillian, publisher of The Daily Dirt Nap, on what's going on. Blame boredom, a gambling instinct, zero commission accounts, and Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy. Interesting column you had about mom and pop trading, this Robin Hood app. This reminded me of kind of the late 90s, 1999, when we had a lot of individual retail investors get in there, 
really speculating at what turned out in hindsight in March of 2000 to be the peak in the bubble, particularly the dot-com boom. Give us a sense of kind of what's happening now with these mom-and-pop investors and, and all the trading apps that are out there. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's really mom and pop. I mean, these are young people. I mean, these are people in their 20s and early 30s. And I I think people underestimate the scale of what is happening. I mean, you saw that Robinhood had 3 million accounts opened in the first quarter of a loan. Wow. You're talking about, you're talking about just millions of people that have dived into day trading. And the interesting thing about this is that you know, for the last 10 years, there were a lot of retail investors that jumped into the market, but they did it the right way. They did it slow. They did it with index funds. They paid low fees. And just over the last six months, everything has gone out the window. Jared, before we get to why no one should blame the Fed for Robinhood and its, uh, its sins and the sins that have emanated from its users, talk to us about what you can actually do on Robinhood Financials app, because it seems like you can do some really sophisticated financial trades. You're not talking about just buying stocks and, and not even just shorting stocks. There's plenty of other things that you can do, and there doesn't appear to be a limit to the amount of leverage you can take. Yeah, I mean, Robinhood uh, is a platform that allows options trading. And, you know, I used to work in the options industry. That's where I started my career. And if you look back at, you know, back then, total options volume in a given day across the four exchanges would be about 2 million contracts. Now it's up to about 12 million contracts. And these people are, you know, very uneducated when it comes to options. Uh, they don't really know anything about option pricing at all, and they're just buying upside calls in stocks just for extreme amounts of leverage, just under the idea that stocks always go up. So um, I think this is not going to end too well. Jared, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of kind of what's driving this move into this retail trading and the and the you know the Robinhood apps and all of that and. A lot of these young folks coming in into the market, and I've read it might be simply the fact that we're all stuck at home, we're all quarantined, uh, there's no sports to bet on, there's no casinos to go to, and to satisfy that speculative urge, maybe folks are turning to the stock market, particularly the options market. Does that have value in your opinion? No, that's that's absolutely what's going on. People are at home and bored. You know, I actually... Um, you know, for five years, I taught at the local university and I checked in with one of my former students and he's, you know, living in his mom's basement, quarantined, and he's trading, you know. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a function of it's a function of boredom. It's a function of getting no action on sports betting. Uh, I think it's also partially a function of the stimulus and unemployment money that's been going out. Because people are speculating with very small amounts of money. You know, I get questions about people with, you know, they have $1,000 to put to work, and they're asking about how to trade stocks. And this goes to the kernel of your column, because you say that rather than it being sort of liquidity out there thanks to the Fed, the real villains here are the discount brokers who have cut trading commissions to zero. Explain that, Jared. Yeah, I mean, you know, commissions were never a huge portion of the discount broker's revenue. They were about 20% or less. Uh, and these were competitive forces that drove commissions lower. I mean, it wasn't anything sinister. Uh, it wasn't really a marketing ploy to try to get more people to trade. 
It was just competitive pressures that drove commissions lower. So that's really, you know, it's, it's just like supply and demand. You know, if you lower the price of something, there's going to be more demand for it. And you've seen trading volumes just absolutely explode since there's no commission. Now, I've always been of the view that commissions and fees are not necessarily a bad thing because they shape investor behavior and they encourage buy and hold strategies. Just briefly, Jared, how much has this to do with Dave Portnoy, who's, of course, Barstool Sports' founder <laughs> and really hyped Robinhood Financial and his day trading? Uh, I think it has quite a bit to do with it, actually. I mean, he has a pretty large following. And I think, you know, I think people take him a bit too literally and a bit too seriously. You know, he's gone after people like Warren Buffett and Jim Simons and stuff like that. And he says he's the greatest day trader in the world. But, you know, he's given confidence to a lot of people that they can do the same thing. This COVID-19 driven phenomenon is having a direct impact here in South Africa as well. With the surging share price of fuel from coal and chemicals group Sassel ascribed to it being picked up by American day traders. Here's South Africa's favorite market commentator, David Shapiro. It's an intriguing story. So we follow analysts that track Sassel. And yes, when the share hit 21 Rand, it was perhaps a ridiculous price. There were still a lot of vulnerabilities surrounding the company at that stage. And yes, they moved up pretty quickly as the oil price recovered to 70, 80 Rand, where we felt that, according to analysts, was a reasonable price for it to settle until things Change. And then all of a sudden, within a 10-day period, from 70 rand, they went to 170 rand on huge, huge volumes, which I couldn't identify. And I started asking questions because, Alec, the background is that if an institution buys over a certain amount, you have to make some disclosures. And the amounts that I tallied up came to about 12 to 15 percent of the issued shares of the company. So there was a huge, something like 75 million shares of traded. I was talking to Nick Kunzer of Dunham, and Nick said, go to the ADR that's trading in New York. ADR just is like a proxy. I'm not going to go into describing what an ADR is, but for all intents and purposes, it trades in America like as if it had a secondary listing over there. And I found that massive amounts of volumes had gone through America as well. And the number of shareholders in the ADR had gone from 270 to 31,000 within a very short period. And of course, this led us to believe that this was all part of the Robin Hood in an online broking fraternity, which had attracted a lot of new participants. And they were going for all kinds of energy shares that had been bombed out. Not only energy shares, that any share that had been bombed out. So, you know, the conclusion was, if you want to see where the trade had taken place and who's been you know, participating, it seemed to be in New York rather than here, although I must say that there were a lot of participants as well. Just repeat those numbers again because they really are quite spectacular. 30,000 day traders, is that right? Did I hear you correctly there? To be exact, 31,000 participants. In other words, that's like your shareholder base going from 270 in America to 31,000 in the ADR. 
So I don't even know how many shareholders there are locally in Sassel. I doubt whether it comes to anything close to that, unless there may be individuals, but I'm not sure that the JSC has got 31,000 private clients. But it gives you an idea of the level of activity that we saw in a market that has been pretty fair dormant. You know, there were there were shareholders and there was activity in that in ADR. If you know in our business portfolio, we bought these shares of Sassel at 28 Rand. Are you saying to us that they're being artificially inflated by our day traders in America? And watch out because that 140 Rand that it's trading at at the moment may not last for very long. That's a difficult question because what's happening now, they came out with a set of results recently. They still have huge debt, around about 170 billion debt. If they can overcome that debt by selling off some of their Louisiana projects, some of the operations there, raise enough money, at the moment the danger is that they're therefore at the mercy of the bondholders, the people who have lent them the money, who have been a little generous in what we call covenants. In other words, have undone those covenants. Normally, anybody who lends you money wants to make sure that you're going to pay back and therefore keeps a watchful eye on how you operate the company. In other words, they look at your profits, that you're not wasting money or going in other directions. So they do have control. And, and if you break these covenants, if you break these rules, they can demand the money back. So they've been pretty generous in allowing them to get back on their feet. But we still need to see debt come down by about 30-odd billion. Now, if they can get over that, you know, if they can overcome these short-term issues, then there's a good chance that they could be worth 150, 160 rand. So that's the other side of it. But I was only addressing the speed at which the shares rocketed from 70 to 170, 180 or something, and they've come back to perhaps more acceptable levels at around about 140. But a lot depends on, on operational issues now. They would be trading through Robinhood, Interactive Brokers, TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, and all the other platforms that exist. Now, we do pick them up from our market because without going into too many technicalities, the trade that takes place in the ADRs has to be satisfied in real shares that come from South Africa. So those trades grind their way back into our market as well as we satisfy the need for the issuer of the ADR to find the script, you know, to, to in other words, to back what he's sold on <laughs> or what has been traded with real script that's moved across into that ADR account. So we saw the trade on our market, and Sassel has been, together with NASPERS and Process, which are always up there, a very, very big trader in our market recently. And closing out this episode, the requirement that we all wear masks when out and about has opened up a huge new market opportunity. But fakes and shoddy products are all over the place. So how do you tell the masking industry's wheat from its chaff? Bloomberg's Berlin-based correspondent Naomi Kresge investigates how to spot the roughly one quarter of masks that don't actually work. Fascinating insights, especially for those on the front line. This is the sound of a lab at testing company Tuf Nord from a video where workers are inspecting the filters on face masks. In Germany, when people talk about testing and the Tuf, 
It's usually in the context of cars. If you want to drive 120 miles an hour on the autobahn, or even 20 miles an hour down your own street, you have to get everything from brakes and lights to bright yellow hazard gear and body rust checked out at your local TÜV testing center every two years. But Germany's industrial quality control companies inspect a lot more than just vehicles. When the government started shipping in face masks by the hundreds of millions from China as coronavirus infections spiked around the country, it turned to TÜV Nord to help make sure the masks are fit to use. It's far more than a rubber stamp. Almost one quarter of the masks failed the test, an executive at the company told me. We are currently working in three shifts, um, 24 hours per day, seven days a week, in order to cope with a tremendous number of mass tests. That's Dirk Stenkamp, CEO of TÜV Nord. Though they're known for cars, testing workplace safety gear is actually how they got their start. Um, the foundation year was actually 1869 um, as a North German association for the monitoring of steam boilers, actually. Um, at that time, we were based in Hamburg, um, and we were actually um, inaugurated to protect human beings um, against the hazards of new technologies. There used to be close to 100 independent TÜV testing companies in Germany. Mergers and acquisitions brought that number down to fewer than 10, and each of them does business everywhere, not just in Germany. TÜV Nord, Stenkamp's company, tests everything from data security for smartphone apps to nuclear power plant safety. Before the coronavirus, it was one of only a few institutions accredited to test face masks at all. Few doctors needed the most protective type of masks, respirators, designed to filter out 95% of airborne particles. With the virus, that changed. Doctors need to be protected from tiny particles called aerosols. The coronavirus is able to be transported through such small aerosol particles of a size you are not able to see with the human eye even under a microscope. And these FFP masks are now designed to actually filter these aerosols. The process of screening the masks to make sure they can do this job starts before a shipment ever leaves China. The masks have to pass a literal smell test. TÜV's local inspectors check for a chemical odor and test the stability of the straps. They check the paperwork. A second team is waiting when the plane touches down in Germany. They do another visual inspection and check the freight papers. And then our uh, inspectors mark shipments either green, that means has passed test, or red, that means has not passed. And only the green ones are then finally um, checked in our laboratories. That means we take samples out of the green marked or labeled uh, mask batches, and these are then specifically tested. That's where things get really detailed. Let's go to Essen, a city in the middle of Germany's Rust Belt, the industrial Ruhr area. 
TÜV's testing labs there used to work on face masks for coal miners. When the mining business declined, they tested particle filters in everything from vacuum cleaners to air conditioning. They're experts on dust. They even produce and sell their own test dust. But for the past couple of months, their biggest business has been the virus. Here's Dirk Renschen, who runs the lab. Most of the masks that are made are made in China. And in China, there are some very good producers that ensure very reliable and good mass deliveries. But precisely in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, there are also various producers that are naturally trying to do a good business and unfortunately are also to some extent really dishonest. That means that at first they ship good masks that also show good results in tests. And then in following shipments, deliver masks that at first glance seem to be the same quality, but then show themselves in filter tests to be significantly worse. Renschen's teams pull samples from each batch of masks and test them in a process that takes two or three days. This is a special quick test, by the way. The full European testing protocol for face masks takes a couple of weeks. The first step is simply to put the mask on. It's called a donning test, and a three-person panel of testers with different head sizes, two men and a woman, tries each sample mask. They want to make sure it's airtight, but reasonably comfortable. Then it's on to the less subjective measures. They strap the mask onto a special machine that looks like a model of a human head in order to measure how much airflow can pass through the filter each minute. The idea is to ensure that if you're wearing the mask for hours, you won't feel like you're suffocating. Finally comes the filter test. They use a special chamber filled with a high concentration of a test gas, and the mask gets attached to the end of a hose. Air from one side of the mask, from the outside of the mask, is suctioned through and measured to see how many particles arrive on the other side. In order to meet the European FFP2 standard, masks are supposed to filter out 94% of aerosols. That's about the same level of protection as a U.S. N95 mask or a Chinese KN95 mask. But this is where appearances can be deceiving. Sie können ein wirklich identisch aussehendes Filtermaterial haben. You can have a really identical-looking filter material that lets through 40 to 50% of the aerosols without being able to tell the difference from another better mask by touch or feel. The German Ministry of Health said that about 20% of the masks it's had delivered so far have failed these tests. Looking across the board at all the masks TÜV has tested, Renschen put the figure slightly higher. Just under a quarter of all masks that reached his labs weren't up to grade. The quality was even worse for simple medical masks, which filter fewer particles than it was for the more high-tech respirators, he said. That's why tests like this are absolutely necessary, because simply due to the enormous quantities of masks that are currently being shipped to Germany, 
the risk is very, very high that otherwise low-quality products would be delivered. Germany is by far not the only country to face this problem. In the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration banned more than 65 mask producers after they failed similar tests at the CDC's National Personal Protective Technology Laboratory. So far, TÜV teams have helped screen more than 800 million masks. They're nowhere near finished. As of the beginning of June, the German government was still waiting on delivery of another 1.5 billion masks through this fall. This has been episode 50 of Inside COVID-19. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.